Lord, I pray that today, through the work of the Holy Spirit, you would allow your people, Riverside, to not only have a greater understanding of who our God is, and not only a greater appreciation for the knowledge of God that we have, but also, Father, that you would enable us to know God. The Lord, you would allow us to not just know about you, but that through a greater understanding of you, we would recognize that we can and should and must know you. Help us, Lord, to not be caught up in the simple things, but Lord, to press in and go into the deep things of God, that we might know your wondrous nature, that we might experience your good character, and so that we might live off of your wondrous promises. And I pray this in Jesus' name. The God of heaven is unlike any other God. Not that there is any other God, but the God of heaven is unlike any idol that has ever been fashioned in the minds and hearts of men. For he is the God who seeks to be known. And he doesn't merely want his created people to know of him, to have facts about him, or simple knowledge of his existence, but he actually seeks to be personally known and even enjoyed by his creation. In fact, this wonder is at the very heart of the new covenant that God made with his people when he promised to remove that awful barrier that prevented their knowledge of him. The prophet Jeremiah records this new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, when it says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The triune God has made it possible for sinners against him to be forgiven and to actually know him. This is the third sermon in our series, The Not-So-Trivial Trinity. And as we will see today, we're going to see today what God has done to make himself personally and intimately known to his people. Once again, the Trinity is the biblical doctrine that there is one God, who eternally exists as three distinct persons. The 
Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune God is one in essence, one in nature, yet he is three in persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. And yet, each person of the Godhead is fully God. Not partially God, not God at certain points in time, and not God at other times and points in time, but always God. Each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is fully God. However, there is only one God. God is one in his undivided essence. Now last week, from 1 John chapter 4, we considered God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, whose love overflows. That from eternity to eternity, God the Father is marked especially by a love which overflows toward his Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And through the work of his Son, the Father's love has overflowed even to undeserving sinners whom his Son saves through his work on the cross. God the Father is marked by a love which overflows. Well, this morning, we will consider God the Son, who graciously makes the Father known. God the Father is marked by a love which overflows. God the Son is marked by making the Father known graciously. The Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who graciously makes the Father known to his beloved people, he does this so that they might actually, personally, intimately know him. Jesus graciously does what he does so that God's people might actually, personally, intimately know the Father. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, as was just read, we learn about the Word. And there are two questions that this passage will answer for us. Number one, who is the Word? And number two, what does the Word do? Who is the Word, and what does the Word do? Look with me at verses 14 and 15, where we consider this first question, who is the Word? And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, my friends, you cannot marvel at verse 14 unless you first grapple with verses 1 through 4, which tell us that this Word is not only a person who is called the Word, but he is a person of ultimate significance. Look with me at the first four verses of this Gospel. Verse 1, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now notice what these four verses tell us about this person called the Word. Number one, this Word was in the beginning. So when the world was being formed, this Word was there. Number two, this Word was with God. When God was creating the world at the very beginning of the world, this word was there with him. And number three, and this is where the word truly stuns us. In fact, it's too wonderful for our finite little minds to fully grasp. This word actually was God. Not only was he present with God at creation, but he was God at creation. <laughs> so he was both with God and he was God. My friends, at this, the glorious, glorious mystery of the Trinity shows its great brightness. For the Word is both with God and He is God. We have a God who's more wonderful than our finite minds can comprehend. And what that makes us do is it makes us worship Him. Because we don't have a God that we can understand fully and put into a box and say, I got that. I know Him fully. We have a God who's beyond our full comprehension but he's a God who's knowable in the sense that we can keep on growing in our understanding, but never come to an end of our growth. Number four, this word does the work of God, for this word actually made all things, and as the verse says, without him was not anything made that was made. So this word was the instrument who made absolutely everything that has been made. Stars and moon and earth and animal, animals and, and algae and lake water and, and the human beings who are made in God's image. All have been made by him. And then number five, in this word is life. So this word is the one who bestows life to all living beings. The person spoken of here in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, the person given the title, The Word, was both with God and is God. This Word is the second person of the Trinity, the one who was identified finally in verse 17 as Jesus Christ. And the one who is forever beloved by the Father God who is in heaven. He is the glorious Son who has both been showered by the love of God from all eternity. And he is God 
from all eternity. We do not fully understand this, but at the hearing of this, all of God's people in their hearts say, Amen, that is who he is. So now we can marvel at verse 14. In verse 14, the word became incarnate and revealed his magnificence. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is the marvel. The word became flesh. God is telling us here in the Bible that this word, the one who was with God and the one who is God, actually donned human flesh. That the spiritual God became a physical being by taking on an actual human body. That the one who created all flesh chose to become flesh himself. This marvel is communicated in numerous other spots in Scripture because it is an essential tenet of the Christian faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Word became flesh. And this Word, who became flesh, actually dwelt among us. The word dwelt, in verse 14, is a translation of the Greek word eskenosin, which is literally rendered set up a tent or a tabernacle. This is a clear allusion to Exodus chapter 40 in the Old Testament when God's people Israel were commanded to set up a tabernacle in the wilderness where God's spiritual presence would be found among them and where God's people would come and actually meet with him. John is communicating here that this word who has become flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us is much like how God's presence was found in the camp of the Israelites in the wilderness. And yet this tabernacling is far superior because this word actually became one of his people and physically, in bodily form, lived among his people. God dwelt with man. He didn't become a man and go up on a mountain by himself. He became a man and was born in a stable with a mom, with a stepdad, with shepherds, and then grew up around other human beings, taught human beings, and then went to the cross to die for human beings. And when he took on flesh and dwelt with men, he showed on earth his awesome glory. Or as he says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Throughout his ministry on earth, this word, Jesus Christ, performed signs and miracles, one after another throughout John's gospel, all of which revealed the marvelous goodness of God. 
And his ultimate glory, the ultimate display of his magnificence, was shown when the word, Jesus Christ, surrendered his sinless life on the cross to pay the sin debt for sinners like me. So that our transgressions might be forgiven, so that we might know God. And when he arose from the dead, he conquered sin and death and hell forever. That's glorious. Only God does that. The apostle Peter, who beheld these things, he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, these words. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He saw the majesty of Jesus unfold before his eyes as work after work, sign after sign, miracle after miracle, and atonement and resurrection were accomplished. He saw the magnificence of the second person of the Trinity. The Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, and others saw this glory firsthand when they walked with Jesus on earth, and they have related his glory to us now through the Bible. The word Jesus Christ, the unique Son of the Father God, has shown a glory that is full of grace and truth, it says. Likely, John, the human writer of this gospel, is referring here to all those times in the Old Testament when God described himself as one of steadfast love and faithfulness. For instance, in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So, just as God is communicated in the Old Testament as being gracious and kind, faithful and true, so the word Jesus Christ reveals the divine glory that is again marked by grace and truth, kindness and fidelity. And in his magnificence, as he displays his wondrous glory, the word is recognized as superior to all others. That's verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Baptist, not John who wrote this gospel, but a different John, John the Baptist was the prophet mentioned here in verse 15 who bore witness to the word, Jesus, before Jesus ever entered the world stage. John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus and declared that even though Jesus was born after him and even though Jesus entered the world stage after him, this Jesus was before him in rank and in superiority. Look at verses 26 and 27 of this chapter. John answered them, John the Baptist, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, verse 27, even, who, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Look at verse 29, 
The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. John is right. Jesus, the word, is superior to all. That's who he is. Second question. Well, we'll get to that in a second. First of all, the glorious word of God, as we see here in verses 14 and 15, the glorious word of God has graciously shown himself to us. So if that's the case, if the gracious word of God has gloriously revealed himself to us, then should this not be the reality that we wrap our minds around this Advent season? Are there any other posers that we should replace him with? When the trappings of tradition and sentimentality and commercialism become so prominent, my friends in Christ, rush to meditate upon the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Stop what you're doing, go into a quiet place, and carefully consider there with prayer that the word who was with God and the word who is God became flesh for you. What a mystery. What a glorious mystery that he has done this. And he has done it for you. And when you either... Enjoy the many delights of family assembled, or you experience the sorrow of relationships long gone. Remember the word who is full of grace and truth. He is steadfast in his love toward you, and he is forever faithful to the beloved people of God. He pours out his grace upon you, and he is ever with you. So whether the Advent season is marked by celebration and joy or sorrow and loss, you have everything you need in Jesus the Son. As you wrap your minds around all of this, why don't you also adopt the same attitude, the same humble perspective as John the Baptist, as he adopted throughout his life. See yourself as unworthy even to be his lowly servant. See yourself as unworthy even to unstrap his sandal. And upon recognition of your worthiness, unworthiness, then point to Jesus in your hearts and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. Let humility lead you to worship and gratitude over the Son who has come. Now, our second question this morning. What does the Word do? We've seen who the Word is. Now we ask, what does the Word do? Verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
In verses 16 and 17, it tells us that the word gives grace from his fullness. The Bible communicates here that the word, who is full of grace and truth, that verse 14 told us, he now gives to others from his fullness. He's full of steadfast love, full of fidelity. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. And he now gives to others from his fullness. He is those things. He is gracious. He is faithful. He is true. He is loving. And yet now he gives to others from his fullness. From his character of steadfast love and faithfulness, he gives grace upon grace. Jesus exemplifies the very character of God. It says in Matthew 25, verse 29, Jesus says, To everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. He just keeps putting more underneath the tree. <laughs> he just keeps giving more, because that's his nature. But this grace upon grace, as related here by John, is actually something a little bit more specific. This word upon in verse 16, notice that, that verse, grace upon grace in the ESV. It is the Greek word onti, which actually means in place of or instead of. So Christ's fullness, in his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. When the ESV says upon, it's as if it's taking one grace and putting it upon over top of the other. It's in place of, it overcomes, it supersedes another grace. One thing was gracious and good, and another even greater grace comes and overcomes it. It's more grace, another grace, which replaces a former grace. And verse 17 flows out of verse 16 and actually tells us what is meant by this grace instead of grace. It begins with the word for, which is the connecting word that makes it tight with verse 16. The first grace of God that he mentions is the grace that gave the law through Moses the prophet. Look at verse 16. Grace upon grace. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. That's the first grace. The law of Moses... You might think of it as a bad thing, but it was actually a good thing. In fact, it was a gift. It came from God's hand. It's a gift. The law of Moses was a good grace from God because it provided guidance to the people of Israel and because it pointed them to their sinfulness and to their desperate need for God to save them. It's the necessary black backdrop for the mosaic to be painted atop. Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law awakens people to their sinfulness, and that is a grace, because God doesn't leave people in ignorance. He first uses his law to awaken them to their need for him. That's a good thing. I need to know that I need God if I am to go to God. But the second grace of God is the grace and truth which came through Jesus Christ. 
the ultimate display of God's steadfast love and the perfect example of his faithfulness to his people is Jesus himself who became flesh and paid for the transgressions of God's people. He didn't just point out to them their wrongs before God. He came and showed his grace by paying for the wrongs of the people of God. It is grace upon grace. So from the word, Jesus Christ, God's people receive a grace which is layered over a former grace. From his fullness, he keeps on providing us with good, divine favor. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is marked by grace which overflows out of his fullness of grace and extends to needy, desperate people. That's what marks him. He graciously, graciously overflows to people and allows them to be redeemed, and then as we're going to see, to know God. And so we come to verse 18, where we see the ultimate blessing of his wondrous grace. You might think that the best blessing of God's grace is to be forgiven. That is a good grace. It's not the ultimate grace. You might think that the ultimate grace of being redeemed is to be sanctified, to put off sin and to put on righteousness. And that is a good grace, but it's not the ultimate grace. The ultimate grace of God is that he removes all of the barriers so that you and I can actually know him. Heaven is not a place where a bunch of people who are somewhat content in life have more contentment and walk around individually. Heaven is a place where people who were not content find contentment in Jesus Christ on earth and then find full, sweet, everlasting contentment in God for all eternity. It is a relational place. One that is, first of all, vertical in relationship between us and the Father, and then by extension, horizontal, as we enjoy him together. From his Father's side, verse 18, this word makes the Father known. Verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God. We saw this last week in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, and now we see it again here. No one has ever looked upon the Father God who is spirit. And apart from Jesus stepping in on our behalf, no one can know the Father God, no one can call him even Father, and no one can enjoy his loving goodness. But here in verse 18, the word is referred to as the only God. He is God himself. And this only God, it says, is at the Father's side. Now this is pretty unique language, to be sure. But John writes this way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to first reveal to us the dearness of the Son to the Father. It says that Jesus, the Son, God himself, is at the Father's side. Literally, he is in the bosom of his Father, as if he is laying his head across his Father's chest. 
What this is depicting is that Jesus is so beloved, so cherished by the Father, it's as if he's leaning upon his chest with the Father's arms wrapped around him. That's the imagery there. He is at the Father's side. He is that beloved. He is the near and dear. Jesus is the beloved and the prized. Jesus is the eternally cherished Son of the Father. As we saw two sermons ago, John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, You loved me from before the foundation of the world. Jesus has always been the choice portion of the Father. Jesus has always been the beloved one of the Father God. And it is this word, this only Son, who is at his Father's side, this Jesus Christ, who has made the Father known to us. This statement in verse 18, that Jesus has made him known, it stems from one word in the Greek original, exegesate, exegesate, or exegesato. And it means to explain something or to present someone in great detail. It's where we get our very churchy word, exegesis. For when we preach exegetically, we are explaining the meaning of a passage to a church family. Well, Jesus is the exegesis of God the Father. He relates the Father to us in such a way that we can actually know him. Michael Reeves, in his solid little book, Delighting in the Trinity, he writes this, I quote, The Father sent his Son to make himself known, meaning not that he simply wanted to download some information about himself, but that the love the Father eternally had for the Son might be in those who believe in him, and that we might enjoy the Son as the Father always he allows us to enter into this relationship of love. That's what Jesus accomplishes. Jesus is the exegesis of God. He is the exposition of God. Jesus is God's sermon of love to us, inviting us into a happy knowledge of God the Father. You may wonder, why is he called the Word? Because the Word refers to the self-expression. It's as if God is speaking through Jesus. He is the self-expression of God. He is the sermon that communicates God to God's people. That's why he's called the Word. Because Jesus relates to us God the Father so that we can know him and say, Abba, Father, help me. And Abba, Father, oh, please teach me your ways. This is why Jesus will later say in this gospel, John chapter 12, verses 44 and 45, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. If you believe in Jesus, then you have God the Father, and you know God the Father, and you believe in God the Father. If you see the glory of Jesus, then you have seen the glory of God the Father, because Jesus makes him known. This is also why Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, 
that all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. None of us know the Father except those to whom the Son has revealed the Father to. Jesus, the exegesis of God, is the love sermon who communicates God the Father to his people. Through Jesus, forgiven sinners have the privilege of knowing the Father personally and intimately. And if you've been around Riverside, you know that we're not going to forget to say something important here. That the ability for you to know the Father through Jesus came at an immense cost. Because as we sang, the babe in the manger grew to be the man who would reveal the glory of God in acts and miracles, but then he became the very man who would go to the cross and lay down his life, paying for the sins of sinners, taking his life back, rising from the dead three days later, declaring victory over sin, death, and hell. Jesus died for sinners that sinners might know God. It was a great cost. It was the most expensive gift that has ever been paid. And my friends, Jesus has done this for you. The Son of God reveals the Father God to us, the children of God. My friends, you can actually know the truth of God. He has not left you in ignorance. He has provided truth that you can know in his word. He has revealed himself to you. If you know Jesus, if you've embraced Jesus Christ, then you can know the truth of God. His Spirit will enable you to open up the Bible and to read it and to meditate upon it and to understand it. His Spirit will enable you to go and sit and listen to sermons from the Bible and apply them to your lives. He will allow you to know God's truth. The Word of God, Jesus Christ, allows you to know the Word of God, the Bible. So search it out. Search out His truth in His written Word. And stop seeking truth in false places. The Apostle Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, about the scribe who finds wisdom in himself. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God's truth, the only truth, seems like folly to a world that is so stuck on themselves. But it is the truth of God, and it is the truth that saves. Don't seek truth in false places. Seek it in his word. Friends, with this, you can actually know the grace of God. Not just the grace that saves you initially, that awakens your mind and your heart to see Jesus and to embrace him in repentant faith, but you can know the ongoing grace of God. 
You can live a life that is in freedom because your sins are no longer counted against you and you're not held off at a distance from God, but you're welcome to come into his eternal loving presence and to fellowship with him. We get to know this grace of God, so live in his freedom and joy. Don't put yourself back under the law that condemns you. Live under the grace that saves you and transforms you and teaches you and disciplines you and guides you and one day places you right in front of Jesus' feet. Romans 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You want to be free from sin's enslaving power? Don't look to law. Look to grace. Look to what comes through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. And then with all of this, dear friends, you can actually know God himself. The triune God that makes us wonder. The triune God that we don't fully comprehend. The triune God can actually be known by us, his people. Therefore, make knowing him your primary aim in life. Know him by knowing his son and his son's work very well. Be as versed in the gospel as you have been versed in anything else in your life. Be better versed in the gospel than you are at anything at your workplace, at any other book you have ever read. Know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And know God through a healthy dose of the Bible. Know God by having your Bible intake be a large percentage of your daily time. I understand That's not easy for everyone. But priorities are priorities. God, the one who fashioned you, who created you, has made himself available to you to be known by you. What greater priority is there than that? To know him in his word. And know him through the communion of prayer. Know the sweetness of going before the God of glory and saying, Abba, Father, and asking him, and pouring out your heart to him, and thanking him, and wondering and worshiping over him. And then know him through his providential acts. As the word informs your mind, let your eyes be informed as they see what's happening in this world, that everything that is happening is God bringing about his plan that will one day lead to the restoration of this whole world and the full redemption, full redemption of his precious people. Let the word inform your eyes and let your new eyes inform how you see the world. Know your God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that your son Jesus Christ has preached a sermon today, that he has revealed to us our Father God in heaven, That through Jesus we have the privilege, the joy, the responsibility to know our Father God. I pray that through the word 
we would bask in you, that we would appreciate you, and that, Father, our relationship with you would be primary in our lives so that everything else is affected because at the heartbeat of our lives, we are people who know God, love God, and cherish him. And I pray this in Jesus' name.